Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. It shouldn't be a secret that white supremacy was baked into the founding of this nation, but it's still not a story we like to tell as part of our history. Our guest this week is David Murrah. He's an essayist, memoirist, poet, and fiction writer who brings a unique perspective to our multiracial and multicultural society. A third-generation Japanese-American, he has written intimately about his life as a man of color and the connections between race, culture, and history. His new book, The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, is now available to order. Trump-approved Republican Glenn Youngkin's closing message to Virginia voters has almost singularly focused on weaponizing race. And who are you to tell me what I can and cannot do? School board meetings used to be boring. The Republican governor of Florida making news today, Ron DeSantis' administration is blocking a new advanced placement, or AP, course on African-American studies in high schools. Here's what the State Department of Education wrote in a letter to the College Board, which administers AP exams. Quote, the content of this course is inexplicably contrary to Florida law and significantly lacks educational value. For my own story, the story of my family and my community, and indeed the history of America is intricately bound up with the question of identity. Hello, I'm David Murrah, and I'm passionate about racial justice. Sorry. Not sorry. David, thank you so much for joining Sorry Not Sorry. And I want to get into your book, but before we do, just tell our listeners a little bit about you and who you are. The first thing I do in introducing myself is I'm a third-generation Japanese-American. My grandfather came here in 1898. So my family has been here for a century and a quarter. I still get questions like, where are you from, and stuff like that, like many Asian Americans. But the most significant thing is that my parents and their families were imprisoned by the United States government during World War II because they were of Japanese ancestry. And the reaction to the camps 
was, I think, consciously and unconsciously, that their race and ethnicity was a crime. Because they didn't do anything. They were 11 and 15 at the time when they entered the camps. And no Japanese American was ever convicted of any espionage. And they didn't do the same thing to Italian Americans or German Americans. And so I think they took as both a conscious and unconscious message of the camps that they should try to assimilate into whiteness and to become like white middle-class Americans. So I grew up in a Jewish suburb of Chicago. I actually am a classmate of Merrick Garland's. We sat next together in calculus and honors English. But in high school, when a white friend would say to me, I think of you, David, like a white person, I would go, great, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to be considered. That's what's normal. And it was only in my late 20s when I began reading black authors that I finally admitted to myself, you're not white. You're never going to be white. So who are you? And I'm as a writer, I began examining my family's past, the effect of the internment camps on my parents and their psychology and their sense of who they were, their identity. And I did this at first through black writers because they gave me a language to talk about race. I'd gone through five years of English graduate school and I'd read no writers of color. And any of the white writers I'd read had not given me a language to talk about race or my own identity. And I found that in black writers. And that began a whole investigation in my writing of what it means to be Japanese American, what it means to be a person of color, how race has affected our culture and our history. And this book, I'm turned 70 this year, is a culmination really of a lifetime of that, of that work. I think what you're saying is so important, A, because representation matters, but also because storytelling matters. So I want to ask you in general, why do you think storytelling is so important? And I think part B of that question is why do the stories we tell ourselves matter so much? Storytelling is important because it is the way we make sense of the world. It is the way we make sense of what happens to us. It is the way that we create our identity. We recognize this when we're in therapy, because in therapy, part of the goal is to uncover what is buried or what is denied, what is repressed, and then to create a new narrative incorporating that repressed memory or those repressed feelings. And it is the same thing with a country. A nation tells itself a story of itself, of its origins, of how it came to be, of how the present came to be. And in America, we have told the story almost solely from the white point of view, and that we have left out the voices, the narratives, the consciousness of people of color. And so the narratives created by BIPOC people is very different in many ways from the narratives created by white Americans. Part of what I emphasize in the book is that those narratives of white America really are narratives of repression and denial. And yet people cling to those narratives. Your book is called The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself. I want to know what are some of those stories and why do you think that we are more comfortable telling those stories rather than the history, the honest truth in the history? James Baldwin said the question of identity is a question inducing the most profound panic. A terror is primary as the nightmare of the mortal fall. So what he's saying is like, to question our identity is as scary as questioning our mortality. 
understanding we're going to die. And people cling to that identity. And Baldwin likens our identity to robes. And we think these robes are who we are. But he says these robes are meant to cover the nakedness of the self. So he says underneath, we're simply fallible, mortal human beings. But we have these robes, and the splendid wear their robes to make themselves feel splendor. And when the wretched, he says, are wearing more wretched robes, they understand that those robes are not who they are. Now, identity changes when power begins to shift in society. And we're in this shift that we've been in for 400 years, but recently because people have become aware that sometime after 2040, we will no longer be a white majority country, that everybody will be a minority racial group. And there is a portion, and in a way, a growing portion of the white population that is freaked out by this aspect. The U.S. Census Bureau says minorities, now roughly one-third of the U.S. population, are expected to be the majority by 2042. By 2050, minorities, including black Americans, Hispanics, and Asians, will make up 54% of the population. And that it contradicts their picture of America, contradicts their picture of who they are, and it threatens their sense that we're supposed to be in charge. We're supposed to control the narrative of who we are as a nation. We're supposed to say whose knowledge, whose narrative is official and true, whose knowledge and narrative is untrue and unofficial. Who decides all of this? We have decided this for 400 years. And if we're a minority, we won't be able to do that. So, Part of what I'm saying is that it's about political power, it's about economic power, it's about shifts in those sorts of powers, but it's also a shift in how people feel about themselves. And that threat is really hard for many white people to engage with. They want to rest in their sense of certainty about who they are. Personally, that is true as well. I think that there is a personal mythology that we all live by until it doesn't work for us anymore. Yeah. And then we have to revise our narrative. We see this in therapy. We go into therapy because we're suffering a crisis. And part of the crisis is we need to construct a new identity. We need to construct a new narrative for our lives. If you wanted to become a lawyer and then you quit the law firm, that you've worked so hard to become a partner because it's unsatisfying. You have to create a new identity of yourself. You have to create a new narrative. Part of what people of color are saying to white people is who you think you are. The stories you tell yourselves are really not true. They're not accurate, either to the past or to the present. And you need to change your narrative. You need to change your identity. And it induces this terror. It's like, no. And what you see in that portion of the MAGA Republicans and the rise of white nationalism is, no, we're going to cling even more deeply to these narratives, to this identity, which we feel is threatened. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Because I think the religious aspect of that, where they're so devoted to a theological mythology, sets the foundation to deny everything else, not only about who we are personally, but who we are as a nation. One of my favorite quotes of Baldwin's is, it is astonishing that in a country so devoted to the individual, so many people should be afraid to speak. Why are so many people either afraid to speak or just not allowed to speak in this country? Yes, and for white people, what they are both conscious and unconscious of is they've been taught how to be white. And I understand this because I will impact it. Like, I studied what it meant to be white, right? It involves both the beliefs and the history and the myths, but it also involves rules about what you're supposed to think how you're supposed to behave. And this black theologian, Theathandica, did this thing where she would ask white people, when did you first discover your racial identity? And I do this with my creative writing students. And the students of color all know when they discovered their racial identity. They have this incident and things. And white people sometimes have to search for it. But oftentimes, what she found, there were people like, oh, I invited a black girl from my neighborhood to my birthday party. And then I was told afterwards by my parents, we don't invite people like that. And so what children learn, both consciously and unconsciously, is there are rules to being white. If I begin to break those rules, if I begin to have friends of color, if I begin dating somebody of color, if I begin voicing sympathy for the causes of people of color, or try to understand the viewpoint of people of color, the people around me, my family, are going to become angry at me. They're going to chastise me. And the kid is speaking the truth and is trying to figure out, like, how do I be a person in this world? And they're taught, no, we white people, we don't do those things. We don't think like that. And you need to think like us. Some kids just grow up and they just accept that, right? That's just the world around them. And they grow up and they grow up with racist ideas and they never question them. And that's that. But some people, early on, they may have questioned it, but then they learned, nah, you don't do that. If you want to be a member of our tribe, you have to follow the rules of our tribe. And what are the effects of that self-delusion? Well, one is obviously white supremacy. You believe both consciously and unconsciously in all sorts of myths and falsehoods and stereotypes about who white people are and who people of color are. Let me give you an example. I was just reading Under the Skin by Linda Villarosa, which is about the healthcare system and the disparities in healthcare. And there was a survey done in 2016 of medical students. Nearly half of them believe that black people feel less pain than white people. These statements were just ridiculous. There were things like black people's nerve endings are less sensitive than white people's nerve endings or white people have bigger brains than black people, or black people, black couples are more fertile than white couples, things like that. So guess what they found? Well, 
they found that on average, the participants endorsed 11.5% of these false beliefs. The researchers also found that the white students that endorsed the false beliefs also were less accurate in their ability to rate the pain level and they were less likely to treat it appropriately. Now we know that when black people come to the emergency room, they wait longer for pain medication than white people. They receive less pain medication than white people for the same conditions. And I don't believe, you know, there's a bunch of KKKers hanging around emergency rooms. Many of these people believe that they are not racist. They would profess to believe in equality. But these medical students didn't realize, like, the myth that black people feel less physical pain than white people goes back to Jefferson and Jefferson promulgating the difference between blacks and whites and saying blacks are intellectually inferior. They don't feel pain like white people. They can't appreciate beauty like white people. So when we say the past is in the past, it's not in the past. It's in half of that medical student class. Well, and we look at black maternal mortality. It has nothing to do with anything else but racism. But people don't understand how those discrepancies happen. And those discrepancies happen both on a psychic level because of the way people think, on actions, on an economic level, on a political level. And people have such a simplistic definition of what racism is and how it works. Now we are faced with the fact that in some states we can't even teach slavery or about gay relationships. There's an entire party, mostly of white men, running against honest tellings of our history. So I guess the question is, how do we overcome that? How do we overcome that denial? One of the ways we do it is through activism, through things like Black Lives Matter, through politics, through getting more politicians who recognize the necessity of racial justice. But I'm a writer, and part of the way we do that, you create different narratives. You create different stories. Jeff Chang in Who We Be, The Colorization of America, he says that what artists do is they see the unseen. They tell the untold. They hear the unheard. And he says, when artists do that, they create a cultural psychic change in the society. And that no political change occurs without this cultural change. And he says, in certain ways, political change is the last manifestation of a cultural change, which has been transforming the society. And so I grew up in the first fully integrated generation of artists, certainly in my field of creative writers. And so by fully you you have much wider variety of stories, of perspectives, of voices, and that has changed the culture. It changes deep in people's psyche if they're affected by something. If you see a work of art, and even if you are inherently prejudiced and you react to that work of art, something is shifted inside you. And that's what artists do. We shift people's souls. We shift people's psyches. We shift the way people feel. And we shift who people identify with. I grew up identifying with all these white heroes. I grew up identifying with Charleston Heston as Andrew Jackson. I grew up identifying with Errol Flynn as Custer. I grew up identifying with all these white heroes who feared darker people, right? And that's the way my psyche was formed. And I had to work to unlearn that. 
But as I began to do it, I began to realize the world was much more interesting, much more complicated. I felt liberated by that. And this is what white people don't understand. They're clinging to a weakness. They're clinging to denial. They're clinging to rigidity. They don't want to admit that their world has changed. And they're terrified. And I'm looking at it and I'm looking like, really? Come on. You don't have to be so terrified. We're all Americans here. These are all our stories. When I think about my grandparents who came over from Italy, people say to me all the time, do you speak Italian? And Italian in my grandparents' home, my parents weren't allowed to speak Italian. They were just completely told, you know what? No, you're just going to speak English. And I remember like when I first met my best friend is Palestinian and he's my age. He's, he just turned 50. And when we first became friends 30 years ago, and I was so just completely fascinated by his culture and where his family came from. And yet he was more American. He had been so like Americanized and so out of touch with his, not only where he came from, but the generational trauma of being Palestinian. And it is just recently that I've seen him come into his own and really flourish. And now he moved away from his family. So what happened was, is he wasn't able to even hold on to the cultural things, like the way his mom would cook. Being Italian, I've never strayed from my roots because my mom still cooks Sunday dinner. There's still like a sense of this culture, this difference. And I wonder like if all of these different cultures make this beautiful quilt that certain people are able to embrace because the mythology of whiteness isn't working anymore for growth. Imagine what would happen, the beauty, if we just embraced the diversity and not just in the cultural sense of like really loving the food, really getting to understand and know. We're talking about history because we have to change the narrative. There's a narrative that explains how we got here. Mass incarceration was created by policy decisions. We decided to deal with drug addiction and drug dependency as a crime issue rather than a health issue. We didn't have to do that. But the reason why we didn't do that was because of a narrative. And there's a narrative of fear and anger out there. Politicians want you to be afraid and they want you to be angry. And I will tell you that you can't do justice rooted in fear and anger. To do justice, you've got to get past fear, past anger, and believe things you have not seen. I'm curious to know how you think our world, our country, would change if the authentic voices of all Americans was encouraged, was taught in schools. Yeah. In my book, The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, at the end of the book, I have a couple essays which talk, one primarily to white people and one to people of color, about where we go from here. If you begin to acknowledge that we have been told lies about American history, if you begin to acknowledge that there's a problem with the way white people view the knowledge and consciousness and narratives of people of color. And if white people begin to accept those narratives, that consciousness, that perspective, it begins to change something inside them. And what I say in one of the essays is that to change 
one's white identity, one must undergo in certain ways a process almost like what Helen Kubler-Ross designates in the five stages of grief. First is denial. There is no racism, or there's so little racism, it's not even worth mentioning, or we white people are the ones who are discriminated. Next stage is anger. It's like, why are you bringing this up? Why are you bringing the past up? Why should we have to think about it? We're all getting along so fine until you began speaking up. And then there's bargaining. Okay, there's racism, but really, is it that huge a thing? Is it that powerful an effect in the lives of people of color in these racial disparities? It's not really that bad, is it? And then there's grief. And you see this in the sort of idea of white fragility where it's all, now I feel terrible about myself. I feel so horrible. I feel so ashamed. And how do you deal with it? How do you do it? And then finally, there's just acceptance. This is the way things have been. This is the way things are. And I can accept it. And that old identity that I used to cling to, I don't need to cling to it anymore. And I think one of the mistakes that we on the left make is we're too into shaming people. And I understand that there are so many reasons for so many of us to feel angry, to feel hurt. And of course, we have to feel that and we have to heal from that. But you don't change people by shaming them. You don't change people by guilting them. You actually change people by loving them. Sometimes it's hard. I talk about Baldwin in my book, and he says, it's really hard to love white people. He says sometimes they do things, he just it's like really hard. But he also says, if you begin to hate white people, you're destroying your own soul. You're damaging your own soul. One of the things I do in my book, The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself, is I chart how Baldwin when he's a young man, feels a lot of rage and bitterness. And just like his father felt rage and bitterness over the ways that racial prejudice had blocked his life. But he understood this rage and bitterness is going to kill me. Either it's going to make me kill somebody or it's going to make me kill myself. And he goes down south and he begins not only to meet people like Martin Luther King and all the civil rights activists, but he also begins looking at, he says, throughout the time, so I looked at the eyes of old black men and black women. And he said, I saw in there a spiritual resilience, a strength, a fortitude that made me proud. And they had survived. They had figured out how to survive. And even though they had, he talks about going to this segregated restaurant where he's supposed to eat out and back. And he sees this old black man sort of eating there and dealing with it. And part of what he realizes is like, this old black man is going, I'm not going to let these white people spoil my meal. I recognize that there's this great force of segregation and racial prejudice around me, but I'm not going to let it affect me. I'm going to limit its effect on me, my psychic peace, my psychic calm. So one of the things I think we as activists have to do is we have to continually work on our own spiritual life, our own mental health, our own equanimity. And the more we do that and the more we heal from our own wounds, it makes us much more effective in helping other people to change. I love you. I totally agree. That is so important. And I think a lot of what we're not necessarily great at living a life of service and empathy is also concentrating on your own growth and your own peace and also how to do the work without having it impact your mental health. It's hard. 
And nobody ever teaches you how to be empathetic. So I think I spent a lot of years, especially my time as a UNICEF ambassador and, you know, visiting developing nations and being really impacted by just the struggle of humanity. But nobody ever taught me, like, mm, you're not much help to people if you come back and don't leave the house for six months. You have to figure out how to be empathetic without it chipping away at your soul. But what you have to do first is be empathetic with yourself. Right. <laughs> and so let me tell you a story. And I talk about this in my book, The Stories Whiteness Tells Itself. My friend Alex Pate, who I write about because he wrote the novelization of the film script, Amistad. But he also has this program called The Innocent Classroom. And it's designed to train teachers to improve their relationships with students of color. What if you had the type of relationship with your students that helped you and them fight against the negative stereotypes that our society communicates about them? What if the achievement gap could be greatly reduced by your increased ability to bridge the relationship gap? My name is Alex Pate and I am the creator of The Innocent Classroom, one part of the Minnesota Humanities Center's collection of strategies to build and strengthen relationships between students, teachers, and community that is being implemented here in Omaha. The origins of this program comes back way years ago when he and I were doing a show on the Rodney King beating and the aftermath. And a policeman was killed in Minneapolis in a pizza parlor. And they had sketches of the killer. It was a black man with dreads. And Alex walked into the, would walk into a restaurant and they would look at him, look at the sketch, look at him. He'd go to the grocery store. They'd look at him, look at the sketch, look at him. He'd go to the bar. They'd look at him, look at the sketch, look at him. And after a couple of weeks of this, he's driving home from St. Paul to Minneapolis. And he has this overwhelming feeling like he's killed somebody. And the feeling is so powerful that he has to drive to the side of the road and say to himself, no, you, you didn't kill anybody. And he realized, and he talks about this in the show we did together, and I write about this, he realized that he had so inculcated and imbibed America's image of himself that he could have infected his soul, his psyche, and that what he needed to do was reclaim a sense of innocence that America did not grant him. And what he wants to do in this program, what this program's doing, and it, this is very fortuitous, but the program is now just recently signed a contract with the LA schools to be in the LA schools, is to teach these kids that the classroom can be a space where they can be innocent. I've taught in the program and served as director of training in it. And what we have the teachers do the first day is say, what does American society say about children of color? And sometimes you have to prod them, to be honest. And then you get things like gangbanger, violent, dropout, uneducated, sassy, unwed mother, welfare, illegal, strange, ugly. And we get this list of 45, 50 things, and it's on the board, and you go, this is appalling. And then we say, if you know this list, the children know this list. What's more, many of them think you're viewing them through this list. And your job is to convince them that you're not. And your job is to convince them that when they walk into your classroom, this list has nothing to do with who they are or how you view them. 
And in order to do that, you have to establish a relationship with each individual child. See them not as a black child or a Mexican-American child or an illegal immigrant, but as that child. And he asks them to find the good in them. And he defines good not as good, bad, but the way Aristotle defined it, which is that for which all things are done. And he gives them a list of things like belonging, smart, respected, leader, connected, safe, stable. And he says, each of these kids will primarily respond to one of these goods. And when you find that out and begin giving that to them and begin nurturing that, they will see you see them. And then you can have an authentic relationship. And once you have that authentic relationship, they can trust you and then they can learn from you. But until that time, many of these kids won't be able to learn from you because they looked at you as the alien other. And people have to fight sometimes against their instincts. In one class, this kid, he's a fourth grader, gets kicked out of class. He goes to the principal. And the principal, this is a school I was working with, kid is shouting and insulting the principal. And the principal says, I'm not going to get angry at you. I know you're a good kid. I know this is not you. I know this behavior is not you. And the kid keeps going. But at a certain point, he starts crying. And after he cries, he goes, I guess I better go back and apologize to my teacher. And so what that kid is doing is he's spouting, really, in certain ways, the stereotypes that he's expected to be back at the principal. And the principal is going, no, I don't believe those stereotypes. I don't believe this is you. I don't believe this behavior is you. I see a you which is not this behavior. I see a you which is not these stereotypes. And when the kid finally gets it, it's like, oh, you do see me. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. In a lot of ways, I can have empathy for projecting and becoming the stories that people tell you just based on my own upbringing in this business and being considered someone who's only going to be a child star who was supposed to use her sexuality in a way to get viewership. And I think we believe the stories were told. We believe the stories were told about us. And the misogyny of that isn't, I think, disconnected and not to take away anyone's story, but just to say that, like, I can relate to turning into people's perception of... This happens to women. It happens to LGBTQ people. It happens in class. It happens to white working class people, right? And they don't really realize to try to deny the damage rather than try to heal from the damage. Finally, what gives you hope? Young people. Young people are so much more accepting of LGBTQ people 
recognize the importance of those issues. They falter on gender, but they're working at it. We're all working at it. They falter on race, but we're working at it. And they just have a very different take on the world. And the other thing I feel is I believe in the power of art. I believe, you know, that we present stories and plays and movies and poems and memoirs. And that's an act of defiance. Because so many of us were told to be silent about our truths, to not tell our truths. And when we honor our truths and we begin to heal ourselves, we teach other people how to heal. We teach other people how to grow. And that's so powerful. You know, it's like my friend Alex Pate's program, The Innocent Classroom. People can look at it at theinnocentclassroom.com, look this up. And I do write about it in my book. It's really effective. He worked in Omaha. And there was a 50-year-old math teacher, white math teacher. He says, I'm a 50-year-old white math teacher with a crew cut. How am I supposed to relate to these black teenagers? But he begins reluctantly taking up the principles of the program. And a few months later, the principal comes to him and says, you used to send the most kids of anyone in the school to my office. You haven't sent anybody to me this month. What's going on? And that white math teacher now says, if I have to send a kid in the class to the principal, I feel like I've failed. He's discovered in himself, like, I do have this ability to reach these kids. I can. He has so much more satisfaction with his job. And obviously, if the kids are not misbehaving, they're learning. And similarly, one fifth grade teacher in a program I worked with, he asked his kids, his fifth grade class, what does America say about kids of color? And they came up with the same list the teachers did. And then he just let them talk for 45 minutes. These are fifth graders. And I talked about this list. And then somebody said, what's the antidote to this list? What's the solution? And another kid says, education. And another kid says, if we're screwing with our education, aren't we screwing with the antidote? These are fifth grade kids. If you let them explore the truths of their lives, which critical race theory helps them, well, not, they're not learning critical, but learning about like Ruby Bridges, right? The six-year-old black girl who in the 1960s desegregated the school. And they want to ban that book because it's going to be harmful to white kids. It's like, why couldn't you say, oh, I am a six-year-old white girl. I can identify with Ruby Bridges. I can identify with her courage. I can identify with her search for justice. Well, how about this? I could be inspired by Ruby Bridges. Yes. I can aspire to be like Ruby Bridges. Yes. David, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. And thank you for all you do, Alyssa. I really appreciate all the work that you do. And being on your podcast, it's really a thrill for me. Delight to have you. Come back. Who am I? Who are we? In his memoir on American film, The Devil Finds Work, James Baldwin writes this about identity. The question of identity is a question involving the most profound panic. A terror is primary as a nightmare of the mortal fall. When identity is questioned only when it is menaced, as when the mighty begin to fall, or when the wretched begin to rise. We have a responsibility as a nation both to our past and our future. We have to tell the stories 
of where we came from and where we failed. The narrative of American exceptionalism is hugely flawed, and saying so is an act of patriotism. If we can't even say where we got it wrong, how can we ever expect to get it right? If we can't even say gay or slavery because so many white people are so very fragile, how can we ever become the nation we aspire to be? Ignoring the truth does not change the truth. It just makes us cowards. White Americans need to listen to the honest stories of our past, and more importantly, when we tell ourselves who we are, we need to tell the truth. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.